Okay, we're going to return to Matthew chapter 21. We were there last week looking at a parable of two sons that uh, were instructed to go and work in the vineyard. One said no and then repented and went. And one said that he would go and then never did go. And Jesus addressed that. And then he comes to verse 33 and he says here another parable. So he's going to speak this second one right behind it. Beginning in verse 33, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let out to husbandmen and went into a far country. When the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard comes, what will he do unto those husbandmen? He's asking this to the Pharisees. And they say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men. And will let out his vineyard unto another husbandman, which shall render him the fruits of their seasons. And Jesus said unto them, Did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they took him for a prophet. So Jesus begins this very, very pointed parable. And it's very easy to reduce this to just a specific message to the Jews, because that that certainly is the primary target. But when he starts in verse 33, and he's describing what this vineyard looks like, he's actually going back to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And he's connecting for the Pharisees, this vineyard that I'm talking about is the vineyard that was promised that you should know so well. Isaiah chapter 5, this is what it says. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the middle of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to the vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked at it, it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge, I shall eat it up and break down the walls, and it shall be trodden down and continues. You can clearly tell that what Jesus is doing in verse 33 is connecting with the story he's fixing to tell with that vineyard that was back there that the Pharisees had to know about. In Isaiah chapter 5, he says, here's this vineyard. He says, what more could I have done? What more could I have given you so that you could bear fruit? What more would you have asked? I planted the vineyard. I picked the best of the vines. 
I put a hedge around it so it couldn't be destroyed. I put a tower in the middle of it. What else could I have done to prepare a place where you could be fruitful and, and have an expectation of a yield? I shared this last week, you know, just briefly, but I want to touch on it again. And I wish this would just penetrate our hearts. I wish that these next few words would just kind of race through our heads, touch our hearts, and create something so aware in us. Because these parables that Jesus is speaking, over and over, these messages tell us that what Jesus was doing, whether it was the fig tree that he was talking about, or the vineyard that he sent these two young men to work in, every single time he was saying that the life that I've set up for you is supposed to produce a yield that has an evidence to it. There's supposed to be fruit. There's supposed to be something that is gathered, something that's produced from the life that I have given you. And here he even goes on to say, what else would you ask me to do? If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 15, this is where God has made some extravagant promises to Abraham. Told him that your children will be numbered like the sand, like the stars. And through you, all the world will be blessed. Through this one person that comes out of you, all the world will be blessed. And at the end of that, he has Abraham go to sleep because he's going to seal a covenant with Abraham. So he tells Abraham, I want you to take these animals and the large animals, I want you to cut them apart with with half here and half here and and just do it with all the large animals. With the small animals, take two of them and kill them. And, and, And it would create this bloody alley, tremendous covenant that was being made in that moment. And God said the way that this covenant would be sealed would be that God and Abraham would pass through this covenant together. But as it got late in the day, God allowed Abraham to go to sleep, and God passed through that sacrifice alone. Why did he do it? Because he said, the things I have promised you, all the good that I have promised you, cannot be contingent upon your ability to keep the covenant. Because immediately when Abraham broke the covenant, and he broke it many times, Every time that he broke the covenant, what would have been lost would have been all the promises. And through him, the world would not have been blessed, which he was certainly speaking of Jesus. So he had to take Abraham out of the story. He did it by passing through the covenant alone and saying, I will secure this covenant based on me and not on you. And for us, that is tremendous good news as Christians. He's saying, the promises that I have made you, are not ever going to depend on you. They're going to depend on me. Now, by itself, that's a tremendous truth. But it went one step further because he was also saying, the work that I, Abraham, that I need you to do, what I need you to produce, because you are in this covenant, because this covenant was for a purpose. It was so that all the world would be blessed. So for Abraham to bless the world, there was a responsibility on the part of Abraham to do what God wanted him to do. But when God sealed that covenant, he did two things. He not only said, I'll secure all the promises based on me. He said, all the work, Abraham, that I need you to do, I'll do it. I'll do it. Again, what an amazing testimony. Because what he's telling us, whatever he calls you to do, Whatever he asks you to do, whatever assignment he gives you, whatever call he places on your heart, he says, I'm going to do it. If you don't believe me, you can read 1 Thessalonians 5.24. It says it just as plain as you can read. Faithful is he 
who calls you, who will also do it. If he calls you to something, he says, I'm going to do it through you. Why was it necessary that he gave us the Holy Spirit? Because that's the way he's going to do and, and accomplish all those things that we can't accomplish. He said, I'm not only going to secure the promises, but I want to make sure all the work that needs to be done it has, doesn't have to be done at your hands. I'm going to do it at my hands. It doesn't have to be done with your heart. It's going to be done with my heart. How well has he equipped us to produce something out of this life so that there's a yield, a, an ingathering off of the investment he made in us? We were designed to be fruitful. I read this on Sunday. He says, for any of those who believe, what will happen? Out of their belly will come this river of living water. How many Christians do you know that there's this river of living water coming out of them? And we notice the next verse. He says, but he was speaking of the Holy Spirit that had not yet come, but couldn't come until Jesus had been glorified. But he was clearly connecting this river of water coming out of our belly was designed and connected absolutely with his giving of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is, is saying here, and it says it back in Isaiah chapter 5, what else could I have given you? I planted the vineyard, picked the best vines to plant. I took care of it. I assigned people to it. I put a hedge of protection around it. I built a tower, did everything possible, gave it over to the husbandman to take care of, and I expected one kind of grape, and I got wild ones. And that powerful question, what else could I have done? What else could God have done to make us ready to yield a crop to produce? What did he do? He said, this is a crazy plan, but this is what I want to do anyway. I'm going to create this man so that he has the capability to hold me inside of him so that I can do the work. I'm going to create a spirit inside this man so that the Holy Spirit can come live in that space the Holy Spirit will be the one who produces the fruit. What do we call that? The fruit of the Spirit. Producing something that we can't produce. I don't think most Christians believe today that their life is supposed to produce anything. I shared, and this, this came from Scott several years ago. When Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. The vernacular is not correct for Jesus to be saying, upon me, I'm going to build my church. So he, one of the common things that we believe is that it was built on this statement of Jesus that upon this rock, I will build my church. So sadly, one of the things that we've done is believed that the primary purpose of Jesus coming was to build a church. And because we believe that, we, we feel like we come into agreement with him building the church. So I guarantee you, as God pointed out years ago, we have built, and we have built, and we have built. And he goes down through this list. We've built auditoriums and gymnasiums and family life centers, and we build and we build and we build because we think why Jesus came was to build churches, to build a church. Which church? Which denomination? The sad commentary of the fact that we have shifted and said church is what this Christian life is about, the fulfillment of our obligation kind of starts and ends at church. If I do my church stuff, I'm good. If I go to church, I'm good. If I, if I teach, I'm better. If I, if I engage in other things, I'm, I'm even better than that. 
Because we've made the Christian life about church. Sorry, not about church. And the reason that churches look the way they do is because when we came into agreement thinking this is what Jesus was going to do, we began to create churches in our own image. And the sad commentary, and I, sh- and I, I can show you this very clearly, but in John chapter 2, there's a verse that says it was the time for the Jews' Passover. And what we find happening in the, in the temple was that they were changing money and selling sacrifices, and Jesus was about to clear them out. You go to John chapter 11, verse 55, and it says it's the time for the Jews' Passover, and they were watching for Jesus so they could plot against him and kill him. What's wrong with those, with those verses? How do both of them begin? It was time for the Jews' Passover. Go to Exodus chapter 13 and see if you can find anything there about the Jews' Passover. Whose Passover was it? It was the Lord's Passover. And, but when they took ownership of something that, they didn't, that didn't belong to them, they suddenly got to decide what happened inside of it. They owned the Passover so they could set it up the way they wanted to. They owned the Passover so it was okay for them to plot to kill Jesus because they took ownership of something that was never theirs to own. We've taken over ownership of the church, which was never ours to own, but when we took ownership of it, we created it in our own image. So most churches look exactly like us. No supernatural reality, no, uh, nothing of the characteristic of God, nothing of his nature. It's just made in our image based on what we value and what we don't value and what we think is right and what we don't think is right. And Jesus is simply saying to those religious leaders and to the same religious leaders today, I guarantee the heart is absolutely no different between the religious leaders today and those that he was speaking to back then and saying, what else would you want me to do for you? I so created you that you could hold me inside of you and you're refusing to accept me. And he's addressing these in this vineyard. Continuing in verse 33, he says, And he led out to husbandmen, and he went into a far country. Verse 34, And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen. And by these servants, we know that Jesus is referring to the prophets of the Old Testament and others, other extraordinary messengers that were sent to Israel, sent to these leaders, sent to Israel, expecting to yield together fruit, and found that it wasn't there. The verse 34 says that they might receive the fruit of it and then return. Verse 35, and the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed one and stoned another. That's Jeremiah 37, 15, Jeremiah 26, 2 Chronicles 24. And you get to Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, and this is what it says. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou, thou that kill the prophets... And stone them which are sent out unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Guarantee it was a serious moment in the life of, of Israel when, when Jesus makes this statement, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill my prophets and you stone them. And he's telling about this in, the, in that earlier chapter. Verse 36. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. We ask ourselves with a sense of, of maybe of justification that we would never do this. We do this all the time. This isn't even unusual. It's a sad commentary for most of us, most churches, that we have this same heart because we are determined to maintain our own agenda, 
to maintain our own values, to maintain our own comfort, that we kill the moves of God all the time. God is never going to give up on his people. He's never going to give up on the church. He's never going to give up on any church. He will never stop coming. He will never stop trying to introduce himself. He will never stop trying to create from within that church what he wants to see. The commentary is that it's never him. It's us. They were killing those who were coming to tell them the truth. We had a guest here two weeks ago, uh, and I talked to him last night, and he, grew, he said he grew up Pentecostal, largely because of his wife. He became very, very Southern Baptist in his early 20s. He said he was pretty extreme about it, because like I said, they'd been here one time. His wife said, he said, just how off-centered is your church in Sundown from being really Baptist? And I said, well, most people, if you ask them what a Baptist is, they couldn't even describe. They couldn't tell you much about what Baptists as a denomination uh, are all about. Interesting question. And, and he popped up and he says, yeah. He said, when we were there, he said, I didn't see many things that most Baptists would accept. So I understand very, very well that what you allow me to preach and teach is because you have decided somehow collectively that what God comes to do, we're not going to kill. What God comes to say, we're going to hear. When somebody comes and tells the truth, we're going to listen. We may not agree, but we're going to listen. And we're not going to kill them. I guarantee there are many, pastor after pastor, who's weary and worn out, just totally broken because of how tired they are contending with the church. Verse 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. And many Old Testament references to that. But last of all, he sent unto him his, them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. I've sent prophets. I've sent other outstanding messengers. I've sent words to them. I've given them powerful pictures, loved them, and received them back. And up to this point, they haven't accepted. But if I send my son, they'll reverence him. They'll recognize who he is, and that will bring them in line. So Jesus becomes this son that was sent. In Mark, the same story, it's described a little bit different. It's a little more touching. He said, he said having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, they will reverence my son. In Luke chapter 20, the same story. It says, Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. Verse 38, But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. If we can take him out, we won't have to worry about this anymore. If we can take out the son, everything will stay exactly the way it is, and we'll have control of the vineyard. It's a great expression of this great truth that the inheritance that they were so supposed to receive, the inheritance that we're supposed to receive, we are joint heirs. We are to be in this relationship with God, in relationship to his son, being a joint heir with each other and with the son that he sent. But they saw the opportunity to take the inheritance. And so they did what they did to the others. And they said, come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. He said, now we won't be servants, we'll be lords. And it's kind of strangely, that's the deep desire of a depraved heart. It is that desire to forget the creator 
and expect a creation to rise into that position. Satan's great problem was that he, he forgot he was a created being. He wanted to rise to the throne of God, forgetting that God was not created, but he was. He honored the creation over the creator. And again, that sounds very, very familiar. Verse 39, and they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When the Lord, therefore, the vineyard comes, again, this represents this settling up. Now, we typically would point and say, well, that happens at the end. No, that didn't happen at the end. The great settling up happened because just in a, in, in a matter of a few years, Israel is going to be totally removed as a nation until 1966. From 66 AD to about 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem was surrounded by a general named Titus. And it became, things became so bad in Jerusalem, so awful, that when Titus saw it, he looked at God and says, do not blame me for what your people have chosen. Couldn't believe the depravity that was going on, the, the disgust of what was happening in the lives of, of the children of Israel as they were held up in, this, in Jerusalem for these years. But in 70 AD, Titus destroyed Jerusalem, carried it off into captivity, and he didn't leave any stone on top of another, according to the scripture. And that wasn't because he just wanted to tear things up. The, the temple was, between every stone, there was a layer of gold. So he removed every stone from the one uh, below it. They were funding a, a military operation, and they were, they were very much after the gold. So there was this great settling up. When you realize that the, the, the trial of this nation and its leaders became the destruction of the entire state. And there was no Israel for all of those years. For about 1900 years, there was no Israel until 1966. So he asked, when the Lord comes, he's asking the Pharisees now, what do you think the Lord will do? At this point, you know they, didn't, they hadn't caught on yet. Because they say, they respond, and they say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. Kind of takes me back to the moment when Nathan is describing to David this story of a man who, preparing a banquet, a rich man who was preparing a banquet. Instead of killing the, one of the many sheep that he had, the, the farmer next door only had one, so he went and stole the sheep and, and prepared it and served it to his guest. And David was livid when Nathan shared with him that story. And he says, take me to that man and I'll make sure he's punished. And, and Nathan says, you are that man. Uriah had one wife and you have, you have so much and you stole what the one that he had for yourself, you had him killed as well. So their confession was that the Lord, when he comes, will destroy these wicked men. They were emphatic about it. And he says, and will let out his vineyard unto another husbandman, which will render him the fruits in their season. So what did they just do? What did these religious leaders just do? They very strangely, prophetically announced their own fate. They didn't know yet exactly what Jesus had just done, but he brought them to the place of confessing that they should be treated the way he was fixing to treat them. That the outcome of what was fixing to happen to them was exactly what they came up with on their own. In Luke chapter 20, verse 16, it's more interestingly done. It says, and when they heard it, they said, God forbid his whole meaning now bursting upon them, that God forbid that these men would treat that son that way. God forbid that they would ever do it. Verse 42, Jesus said unto them, Did you ever read in the scriptures, it was in Psalms 118, about the stone which the builders rejected, 
It's a messianic prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. It reappears within the Old Testament several different places in Isaiah. Just kind of beautifully established. There would be a stone, a cornerstone that the builders would reject. And that the building that would be built without the cornerstone would be off. But in verse 43, powerful shift occurs. Therefore say unto you, the kingdom of God, God's visible kingdom upon this earth, which has stood in the seed of Abraham up to this point, shall be taken away from you. I want to tell you that ought to catch our attention. Why was it going to be taken away from them? Now notice this. The rejection of the son came later. They refused to bring forth the fruit that was required of them by the master. They refused. And then ultimately they refused the son because they wanted to take the inheritance. They wanted everything for themselves. He says that she'll be taken away from you and I'm going to give it to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. I'm going to remove you because you will not bear fruit. And if you won't bear fruit, I have no use for you. Again, he's told us in the parables. If you won't bear fruit, the fruit that I expect you to to yield, then I have no use in you being here. As a matter of fact, he says he cut the fig tree down. He cursed the fig tree because it wouldn't produce the fruit in the season that it was supposed to produce it. We don't take that seriously. Again, why does Satan want us and it's so effective getting us to process ourselves? Our mind and our heart is constantly on us. Why does he do that? I guarantee there's some people sitting here, probably not to the degree that we would have on a Sunday morning, but there's people sitting here who have a hard time getting their mind and their heart off of themselves and their personal trouble. Why would Satan want that to happen? Because he creates treadmills so that we'll run on them, Stepping onto a problem at the same place we get off every night and having no real success, making no real progress, but wearing us out in the effort and nothing actually ever occurring. Satan is a manufacturer of treadmills. He's a manufacturer of distractions. And the number one distraction is me. To get me to process me. Because if I can process me, I will produce no fruit. People will know me by the problems that I complain about and the issues that I have and the difficulties that I face. Because I regurgitate over and over the issues of my own life. I shared with you on Sunday. There are speakers that are projecting my voice out of this microphone. Wherever the speakers are, wherever it's coming from, if we did this wrong and my voice was trying to go back into the same speaker that my voice was coming out of, we call that feedback. It creates a shrill sound. What happens when we begin to process us and what was supposed to be projected out keeps coming back into us? What does it create? It creates a shrill sound and our life begins to tell a story that looks absolutely nothing like the the story that God has intended for us to tell because our complaints are coming back faster than they're going out. And it's, it's making this feedback loop constantly to create a shrill sound. Let me back up to 43 for just a second. Who is that new nation that would bring forth the fruits thereof? This is this great evangelical community, a community of the faithful, which are now entrusted to produce what Israel would not produce. It would consist chiefly of Gentiles and that part of Israel that was willing to be saved, according to Romans. And this vastly important statement is given only by Matthew. 
If you go back to Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, this statement is made to the children of Israel. It says, I will make you a nation of priests. I will make you this great nation, a peculiar people, because you are my treasure. This is a promise that, is, that God makes to Israel. Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. You will be the most unusual, peculiar people. You will be odd to the world. You will become a nation of priests. And through you, through what, you're, what you have the capacity to do, the world will be changed. And now we find in Matthew 21, 43, Jesus is saying, you know that promise back there? That one that I said where you were going to be a peculiar people and that through you the world would be changed and all that I promised you in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Guess what, folks? You've come to the place where God has finally said they're not going to do it. So I'm here to tell you, I'm taking that away from you. And he took it. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, these words to the church. He says, I'm going to make you a peculiar people. I want to make you a nation of priests. Exactly the same words as Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Not spoken to Israel, spoken to the church. Absent one word. He didn't call us the treasure. We're not his treasure. If you go to Matthew chapter 13 and those seven parables that are there, it says there was a man walking in the, in the field looking for a treasure. And when he finds it, he goes and buys the field. But he has to leave the treasure there because he couldn't take it. Who is that treasure? Israel. To the Jew first, remember? But what does John chapter 1 say? He came into his own, but what? His own re- received him not. They wouldn't take him. They refused him. Quite a simple picture. They were the treasure that had to be left in the field. Now the, ve- the next verse says, there was a man seeking a goodly pearl. And when he found it, he bought it. He took possession of it. That pearl is a stone that the Jews won't use because they see it. Is unclean because it's born in the muck and the mire of the ocean. A speck of sand has to pierce the side of an oyster. And the oyster begins to streak it with blood and mucus, forms that pearl. At that time, that oyster had to die so the pearl could be extracted. Get the picture? A side opened when the oyster died. Out of that came something very beautiful. What's the value of, of a pearl if you break it? It's worthless. What's the value of the broken church? told you the other day, you know, if we want to shock the world, according to John 17, when Jesus is praying for the church, first thing out of his mouth, when he says, let's pray for everybody that's going to believe. He's prayed for himself, he's prayed for the disciples, now he's praying for anyone who will believe. So I pray that they will be one. He knew that that was the greatest need within the world, was that the church would be one. And you heard me say, what a shock it would be to the world if every church on the same day took the signs down and said, we will no longer distinguish ourselves by our differences, but know each other by the similarity of Christ. That shocked the world. Because we know who created the division, and it wasn't God. Verse 44, And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. So he's describing this as a temple, and I can assure you in the, in the life of Israel, it ground them to powder. When, when that stone fell, it ground them to powder. When the chief priest, verse 45, the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parables, referring to the two sons that we studied about last week, and this one of the wicked husband. They perceived that he spoke of them. So now they realized what they had just done. He told them the parable. They offered that this should happen. They knew that what they had said should happen, that the Lord over that vineyard should come and just destroy those wicked men and give that vineyard to somebody else. 
in verse 43, and he says, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of heaven shall be taken from you. I guarantee they didn't have to be very clever to realize that the parable he had just spoken about the vineyard and them, them saying it should be taken away. He just now says, yes, you're right, so I'm taking it away from you. I'm taking away your ability to produce what I want you to produce. And when the chief priest heard it, and the Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them, verse 46, but when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him to be a prophet. Again, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but the heart of the Pharisee and the heart of the scribe didn't go away when we removed these stories because they were bound in the spirit of religion. Religion became more important than relationship. That has not changed a bit. The spirit of religion is as solid and prominent within the church today as it was back in these days. The heart of the Pharisee beats powerfully well within most Christian churches. And we wonder why we move with such little power, such little authority, and accomplish so little, because God has made it very clear, you will not produce. There will be no river of living water until you receive the Holy Spirit, because he's the only one who can produce the characteristics and the nature of God, so that the evidence in the church becomes that of a supernatural God and not of earthly men. He's trying to produce within this church, his church, a supernatural evidence of a God who is supernatural. He wouldn't have sent Jesus as this picture of what this life is supposed to look like if if there was no expectation of a supernatural witness. What are the chances that we can create a supernatural witness if we say no to the Holy Spirit? Zero. What's the likelihood that we can create a supernatural evidence if we say yes to the Holy Spirit? 100%. I promise you, he will do what he said he will do. I shared this on Sunday, and this is, I'll end with this. Talking to you about Revelation, just made the statement that all Revelation is an invitation to encounter God on a deeper level. The word Revelation is to remove a veil, to expose something under it that has always been but never seen. A Revelation is, there's a truth under it that has always been the truth, The Revelation says, I get to lift the veil, understand the Revelation. You know, Dale Cain was one of the greatest men who had seen Revelation and brought it to a group of people. I get, fortunately, now, to bring the yield off of what he taught. Because Revelation was never designed to be held as a concept. Revelation was never designed to be something I know. Revelation was to be a concept that now gets so embedded in my life, when I receive the revelation, it begins to yield the evidence of that revelation. I've received it. I've received the concept. I've received the truth. It was just uncovered. And now I'm supposed to be able, because I've received it by revelation. If, if, I, if I don't hold it as concept, if I actually pursue what he just showed me, then, then my life will become the evidence of that revelation. Or when Paul is talking to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about spiritual gifts because it says about the church in Corinth that they came short of nothing. They, I mean, he, they had them all. They'd grown very confused by them. So when Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 12 to lift this veil off of spiritual gifts so that they can have understanding for what they had never seen before, chapter 14 verse 1 tells them, pursue. Don't just hold it as a concept you know. Pursue those gifts. Pursue what I've just told you so that your life becomes the evidence of the spiritual gifts that I've just revealed to you. 
Jesus, when he came up out of the water, what was revealed to him that he'd never seen before? Again, this is hard conceptually for us to, to get in its entirety. But he came up out of the water. His father adopted him. He also received the Holy Spirit. And all of heaven was open to him. And what was the wilderness about? Not so that Jesus would know what temptation was like, so that we could associate with him because he was also tempted. The wilderness was about him having to learn how to fully accept what had just happened to him. He needed to know what it was like out there in the wilderness to function as the son of God that he had just heard come down from heaven. He needed to know what it was like to eat from a provision of heaven because Matthew chapter 3 says, and all of heaven was opened unto him. He needed to know what it felt like to eat out of that provision and not the ones that his hand could provide. He needed to know what it was like to speak with the authority that was given to him when the Holy Spirit came and descended on him and it remained. The wilderness was about Jesus taking revelation and accepting it for himself so that the next three and a half years, his life would become the evidence of what he had just received. That's no different for us. He didn't give us revelation so we could be smart. He didn't give us concepts that we haven't seen before so that we could be different. He gave us revelation so that we could change the world with what we had just discovered. So that that revelation began to come out of us and touch lives and bring a difference. We hold so many things at the concept level and teach them as concepts, but have no desire or willingness to ever demonstrate them or to put them in action. Scripture is very clear. God says, I expect your life to bear fruit. It's not an unreasonable request. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He prepared a perfect vineyard. His expectation is that our lives would bear fruit. I would never encourage you to compare one person's fruit to the other. But I will tell you that every one of us should be able to testify the fruit that he is creating. I did a funeral today for James Pierce, a good friend in ropes. Uh, passed away, he's 88 years old. And I told Lorinda the best way I could describe him was he was as close to an A.P. Hudson as any man I've ever seen. World War II veteran, unbelievable man, gentle, loved his wife with all his heart. He loved to tell jokes and he was awful at it. I don't think he ever cared if they were funny. He loved to read romance novels, but if he came across a romance scene, he'd, he would quit reading. just wouldn't do it. Just that kind of very gentle man. Uh, his wife, Wanda, was a school teacher in, in ropes and died right before I went over there as interim pastor. James was a phenomenal man. You look at his life and it yielded much fruit. He didn't do it with great things. He did it with a thousand small ones. Every story was about something that he did that seemed very small, but changed someone's life over and over and over. He owned a blacksmith shop with his dad, Pierce Farm Supply, for many years. And I don't know how many people told me, said, yeah, and they sold Cokes for a nickel. Always kind, always remarkable. So you can't compare one person's fruit to the other because he wasn't a Billy Graham, but he changed lives that were unbelievably changed. He just asked us to do that, every one of us, to do and produce a yield off of a life that he's so invested in that the expectation is fruit that only the Holy Spirit can bring. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this parable and the powerful truth of it. I pray, Lord, that you would find us faithful, recognizing that to bear fruit within ourselves is impossible. Nobody would want it if we could do it. But the fruit that you produce will draw people. The fruit that you produce will create goodness and kindness and mercy and love and long-suffering. It produces something that becomes very visibly evident to a world that desperately needs to see it. 
So we pray, Lord, that our lives would always be fruitful, bearing about us the fruit of the Spirit, releasing into others that which only you can do. We speak it in the name of Jesus. Amen.